Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. I'm Will Lynch, and I'm the Associate Editor of Resident Advisor. It's not easy throwing techno parties in Denver, Colorado. Just ask John Templeton, the DJ and producer who runs the Great American Techno Festival. Nothing about his job is easy. From liquor laws to closing times to the simple fact of geography, every aspect of this event is an uphill battle. But like so many promoters living far from techno's established circuit, Templeton doesn't have much of a choice. If he wants to hear artists like Jeff Mills or Mike Parker in his hometown, he'll just have to book them himself. So he does. Last month, as Templeton made his annual winter pilgrimage across Europe, we caught up with him in Berlin to discuss his life as an underdog promoter. So you just are finishing up a stint in Berlin. That's right. Uh, the last five weeks I've been here. So heading off to Italy tomorrow and then I'll be in Greece on Saturday. But try and do the little pilgrimage here once a year when I can. So, What'd you get up to while you were here? I mean, it's kind of like a semi-vacation, semi-scouting mission, record-buying mission as well because ordering records in the States, even though we have plenty of of distributors and their shops, it's still cheaper to buy records over here. So to have a chance to hit up, you know, Space Hall and Record Loft and Hard Wax and, and Bass Cadet is, is also something that I like to do. But it's, I feel like coming over here in winter is also a good time to scout out stuff for what I would, you know, try to like to do for the rest of the year in Colorado and in the States as well. So you mean like artists you want to book? Artists that I want to book or people that we just don't, you know, have a chance to see in the States. You know, there's so many people that I can see here now that maybe we'll, they'll end up showing up in the States in like three or four years. And by then I probably won't like their music, but yeah, it's a chance to just see people like Helena Hauf. Is that how you say her last name? Yeah. Hauf. To see people like her, the last Friday at Tresor, the Swedish duo SHX, however you, <laughs> white noise, whatever. And they were fantastic. So just, you know, it's a real good opportunity to do that. And then moreover, it's a chance to see people. I feel like if I come here in the summer, there's a million tourists that are here. A lot of my friends and peers and artists, they're gone. They're on, you know, they're on the festival circuit or they're traveling or all their friends and family are over here. So I feel like winter is a really good time to actually get to hang out with people and actually get some work done on here. So. And I know you got in at least one really serious Berghain session. We did a bunker showcase actually in Colorado for my festival this past year. So when I found out that the bunker guys were actually going to be at, at Berghain, that was a, you know, tried to line up my trip around that as well. So it was great, you know, to get to see, you know, kind of like an American label do their kind of thing at Berghain, especially with the mix of the American guys and then people like Voices from the Lake and Peter Van Hosen. It was great. I mean, it was an awesome kind of marathon experience and uh, best time I've had there by far. And I think part of that was just because to have that group of friends there, you know, when you go there by yourself or with, you know, one or two friends, it can kind of be overwhelming. But, you know, to like kind of be in the middle of Berghain on the dance floor and look out and see like 10, 15 of my friends, you know, all getting down to Derek Plazleko or, you know, Eric Cloutier or, or Marco Shuttle, that was, that's, you know, those kind of experiences that brings me back to being a consumer and it's nice to have that actually that's like one of my favorite things about coming here is to just be a paid consumer again and not have to to work so hard just to see someone that that i want to see so it was a it was a fantastic show I, I was really proud of the guys and i felt like from programming from start to finish it was you know it was about as good as i've seen in a while that's an interesting idea of being brought back to being a paid consumer i mean like as a promoter and a dj and everything you get a different perspective 
Absolutely. And I feel like, you know, for part of it is you want to be a consumer, right? I feel like the day that I don't want to pay to go to a show or that I'm not inspired is a bad word, but I feel like the day that I'm not motivated to, to see someone is when I should try and look for something else. So I think that's the beauty of being in Berlin is there's so many times for me to just be a consumer again and just to, to go out and go to a show by myself and, you know, not even talk to anyone and just, you know, sit on the dance floor and, and have a good time. I feel like that's important. I feel like that's important for any DJ or promoter or even musicians as well is like, you need to see other people. I know there's the kind of the flip side of the coin of, you know, just focus on your own thing and don't worry about what other people are doing. But for me, I feel like it's, it's very important to, to just go back into the reason that I got this. And it's, you know, as much as we may want to classify and make this music more than it is, it's it ultimately, it's a party at the end, right? It's a dance party. And it's about just kind of being on the dance floor with a good sound system and minimal lighting, in my opinion, and, and just kind of like enjoying the music and not having to, to really do too much, which is a, a fun experience. So. And I guess it's important just to still be able to have that classic, memorable, transcendent, you know, dance floor modes. It's important to still have your mind blown. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they don't happen as much as I think they used to. I think part of that is also when you're younger, you, you know, the older you get, you see more stuff, right? So it's hard for something to be novel, but you still get those moments, you know, and it doesn't have to happen in Berlin. It can happen anywhere. I mean, it happens in Colorado or, you know, I played a gig in New Mexico two years ago where it was just for 40 or 50 people, but it's just kind of that moment, that kind of symbiotic relationship that you can kind of get that doesn't really happen a whole lot. And when it does, it kind of, it makes you feel like a kid again, you know, kind of like when you see your favorite baseball team or football team or something like that, it conjures up all those memories of youth. It's kind of the same thing. Um, let's talk about Great American Techno Festival. Sure. So for someone that doesn't know what it is, um, just tell us a bit about what the festival's like, what the idea is. Well, the idea actually started as it was probably like a lot of ideas. It was a half-brained idea. We're sitting around with some beer and hanging out with friends like, hey, you know what we should do is we should do this. Um, but the idea initially started as we have a Great American Beer Festival in Denver, and they've done it for 30 years now. And so it's kind of like a celebration of American craft beer. And I think my half-brained idea when I started it was you know, we have 50,000 people that come into Denver for this beer festival. If I can just get 1% or if we can just get like half a percentage of that, that's 250, 500 people that would never be coming to our shows before. And it sounds great, right? When you're talking to some friends and you're drinking beer and it's late at night, right? It sounds great. In reality, it actually it failed miserably the, the first year as far as our idea of doing that. And it was because the people that would come in town for the beer festival, they'd just be wasted by the time our events want to start. You know, we're trying to start at 9 p.m., They've been out drinking all day since eight in the morning because the breweries open up earlier and then they go to the beer festival and, you know, we're talking American craft beer. So it's IPAs and stouts and like really heavy beer. So the people that would show up to our event were completely wasted and we'd have to like get them out of there, you know, even before like midnight or they just wouldn't come, you know. And so what seemed like it was going to be a really great idea from the beginning was was really not. What were to our advantage and it's kind of pigeonholed me now was it was the name of the festival was going with. We were just trying to play off Great American Beer Festival, right? Just kind of have that for the people that came in town, you know, like this cheeky kind of, you know, tongue-in-cheek type of, of name. But what at least happened with us, even though we didn't get that audience that came in, I mean, our numbers really did not go up significantly at all. What we did get was people were kind of galvanized by the name itself, the fact that we had a name that you didn't have to read about the festival. You instantly knew what it was, right? You knew it was American Techno. And I feel like for a lot of people that, you know, especially people in the States where we feel like techno has kind of gotten pushed to the back burner and there's kind of a lost sense of pride that for a lot of people that were either old school into techno or just getting into it, it was just kind of this idea of, wow, cool, all American artists. And then to be honest, it just made it, it made it a lot simpler for us as opposed to have to worrying about visas and worrying about these crazy flight shares by doing people that were primarily you know, in the continental U.S. or people that were from here and, you know, maybe are from the U.S. and lived in Berlin or live in Europe now, you know, they're coming back to the States a couple of times a year anyway to visit their family and friends. So it was just easier for us to just kind of do all that. And we've run with it and luckily we've been relatively successful with it. I'm interested in that idea that you said it feels like techno has been put on the back burner. 
So like there is a, you know, a techno community in the States, uh, a community of artists and DJs and promoters and stuff um, that's been kind of marginalized or that's, that's gotten weaker over time or something? I wouldn't even necessarily say marginalized. I just feel like a lot of the people, you know, that I know or that we know, a lot of people have had to come to Europe to be able to to really make it, to do it full time as a career and to really kind of expand your fan base. Yet there's so many people that are still in the United States or that, you know, obviously techno was, you know, founded in Detroit with, you know, a select group of people, but it's really, it really took off overseas. It wasn't in the United States where it took off. And, you know, growing up in, in my youth, growing up in Virginia, which is where I'm from, you know, I wasn't exposed to techno. It took years, you know, when I was a kid, I was listening to punk rock and hardcore and oi. It took years for me to find out about techno and for something that's kind of an American art form from the beginning. Now I feel like by coming over to Europe, it's it's grown, it's changed in a good way, not in a bad way. I don't feel like people have been marginalized in the States. I don't feel like the techno artists have. They're just more appreciated over here. And we kind of wanted to have something that said, guess what, your home country actually likes you. Outside of Detroit, you know, I feel like we got a lot of backlash for that. Like, how dare you call this Great American Techno Festival and it's in Denver, who the, who the hell is from Denver? And that's a good point. The, the whole thing was, I lived there. That's, that's why we did it in Denver. And Denver's in the middle of the country and I felt like, you know, a lot of people haven't seen Colorado. People have been to New York, they've been to LA or San Francisco. Maybe they've been to Seattle or Chicago, but Denver, you know, for a lot of times I think people from the Rocky Mountain time zone kind of consider it the forgotten time zone, the flyover time zone, right? And we're kind of in the middle of the country, so it was easy to be able to, for people from LA or New York, it's about a two and a half, three hour plane ride. I mean, it's not that bad. And then you come to Denver and there's stuff that you can do up in the mountains or obviously the weed tourism now is a, is a huge draw for people as well. So, Yeah, because partly because of the weed thing, Denver at the moment sort of has this brand of being like, uh, laid back, cool, um, part of the U S. Um, is that how you find it? Or, you know, what's, what's it like trying to put on a techno festival in Denver? It's not easy, but I think if it was easy, we probably wouldn't want to do it. Other people would have already been doing it, to be honest. Honestly, the weed thing has not helped us. I initially thought it was going to, I thought it was going to bring in a ton of people that would really, you know, it's going to bring in more young people from 20 to 30 years old and from 30 to 40 that we would be able to capitalize on. But the thing is, <laughs> weed people are not techno people for the most part. You know, especially in the United States, people that are into weed or into jam bands, or, you know, if it does cross over to electronic music, it's it's dubstep and EDM. And I feel like because of Colorado is a very, it's a sunny state, it's an outdoor state, it's not super conducive to techno. I mean, I feel like, you know, your aesthetic, your environment is is what kind of determines the music that gets created. And that's why techno has done well in Detroit. That's why techno has done well in Berlin. It's because you have these kind of cities that were kind of run down and you have these empty old buildings and it's, you know, it's kind of cloudy and gray anyway in Detroit and Berlin. That's more conducive for techno. You know, when it's sunny all the time and Colorado has, I think, 315 days a year of sunshine, it's a very sunny state. It's a very outdoor state where people want to either be skiing or hiking. And, you know, that's why I moved there. It's not like I moved to Colorado because I wanted to do techno. I moved to Colorado when I was 21 years old because I wanted to smoke pot and drink beer and go skiing and, and do the outdoor stuff when, when you're really young. So I feel like that's what draws a lot of people. And I feel like the weed thing as well, you know, it's not pulling in the best and the brightest. It's not pulling in physics students from MIT. It's pulling in the dude who sold weed at his high school. And now he's like, man, now here's a place where I can do this legally. <laughs> I can't wait to move to Colorado. It's pulled a lot of those people out. Now it's pulled a lot of great people out as well. But it's also a transient state. You know, very. I feel like Berlin is kind of similar in this aspect when I'm here in Berlin. I don't meet a lot of people from Berlin. Everyone's from somewhere else. Even the Germans are generally, you know, they're from the West or they're from Vienna or Leipzig. And not many people are from Berlin. What's well, the same way in Denver? You know, it's the same way in Colorado. There's just been such an influx of population over the last 20 years, myself included, that it's just, you know, people are going to leave at some point. Their family's not there, you know, unless they root down and start a business or start a family in Colorado, they're, they're only there temporarily. So we've kind of struggled with that as far as trying to have a core of people that you can have around you to either work on music with or try and build something because people kind of look at it as a temporary stop for them. So for better or worse, you know, I still really enjoy it there, but it's, it has its challenges. And you guys put on some pretty heady 
serious techno? Like, who were some of the artists you had last year? Well, <laughs> it's kind of funny that you say that. You know, last year I really, I guess to to back up a little bit, I had traditionally gone to Movement in Detroit. That was like the festival that I went to because it was kind of like the North American meeting place for all the techno minds. And then this past year I went to Mutech for the first time. And Mutech kind of floored me and it made me pissed off in a good way that I hadn't gone to Mutech first. That I feel like if I'd gone to Mutech first before Movement, Great American Techno Festival would be totally different. And what I liked about Mutech was it was pass holder only. And you would go there on like Wednesday or Thursday night and you'd see people in the room that maybe you wouldn't talk to Friday, Saturday or Sunday, but because you saw those people at the same parties, there's kind of a, an unspoken innate relationship that you have with them. You know, like seeing these people knowing they've experienced the same thing with you. And for larger festivals, you don't really get that. And when I started GATF, I really, I wanted to build it and build it and build it. I wanted to, each year we're gonna try and incrementally get bigger and then one day we're gonna get to Red Rocks, right? Red Rocks is kind of the, the you know, the world-renowned venue in Colorado that does six, 7,000 people, you know, for shows. Well, the problem is I don't like six, 7,000 people at a show anymore. I only like a few hundred. And I felt like it would be disingenuous for me as a promoter and also as a consumer to try and sell something that I myself would not want to go to. So over the years as we would do people like Kevin Saunderson and Jeff Mills, right, these kind of traditional techno names and try and build it up. You know, last year I really wanted to change things. I wanted to try and make it more for the heads, I think, like Mutech style. And, you know, you can call it courage or you can call it foolhardiness and you can take your pick. But we tried to do a smaller lineup and it was kind of like trying to, you know, try to do a U-turn with an aircraft carrier in a swimming pool. It just it didn't really work the way I wanted it to. I felt like our lineup was better than we'd ever had. We did a bunker label showcase and instead of it being the Peter Van Hosens and the voices from the lake and stuff like that, it was more, it was Clay Wilson and Leisure Muffin. And I really liked that because these are guys who are only playing a handful of dates a year outside of their home cities. And they're going to work for weeks and months for this one set that we are working weeks and months for. And it's nothing against the bigger touring artists, but why would Great American Techno Festival be special to them when someone's playing 80 to 100 dates a year? It's special to us because we're spending you know, six to nine months preparing for all of this. But it's not really special to them. And I wanted to try and book people that it, that it mattered a little bit more to them the way it mattered for us. We went more obscure this year, you know, Avalon Emerson, Pittsburgh Track Authority. These are names that we may like, that people, that the heads may know, but for our crowd in Colorado, um, and even in the United States in general, who we're trying to pull from, I don't think it resonated with them as much. And so from a consumer standpoint, from an artist standpoint, I feel like we delivered as, as well as we ever have this year. But... I didn't get the numbers through the door yeah. that I wanted. And I mean, that's the risk you take. But I would rather, you know, I've told my friends this before, I'd rather fall on the sword that way. And we don't have money because we tried to do something different, you know? And then again, I would rather have someone who wants to like bleed out on that stage for us, the way we're trying to like bleed out and, and make the festival happen for our consumers and for our artists, because it's about, you know, I'm a DJ as well. And you want to have that great experience. You want to have a cool show with a good sound system and, you know, an audience that's there for the right reasons, not just because this is the cool party of the night and we stumble through the door. So um, I tried to make it all pass holder only this year. And our audience was was not super receptive to that. I think in the States, people, you know, they decide. Sorry, just to, just to clarify, so pass holder only is. Yeah, I just did festival pass. We didn't do walk-up sales. I didn't want to do walk-up sales. And part of that was was twofold. One was the whole Mutech thing, right? Mutech this past year, it was only pass holders. You couldn't buy an individual ticket. So like I said, you had that just feeling of like being in the room with people at the same time. And, you know, without even ever talking to them, you just, you felt like you could relate to them just because you've seen the same stuff over the course of a weekend. So I wanted to create that amongst our audience. And for the pass holders who did go, you know, we, that was the sort of feedback that we got there. Hey, it was really cool that, you know, you did this just kind of for us. And even though I didn't know who some of the people were, we kind of just, you know, went on faith and, and you guys delivered. By the same token, people want to, they don't, we're in a generation now that it's face, Facebook and social media and it's, it's very quick decisions that people make. And so we had a lot of people saying, hey, I just want to come for this show. I just want to come for the bunker. or I just want to see Pittsburgh Track Authority. And I said, no, <laughs> you know, like by the past, like trust us and, you know, for better or worse, you know, we just we just didn't get the numbers that that I wanted to get. But again, I feel like for the people who did buy a pass, 
that was a better experience for them because they didn't have the random drunk dude who who steps on your feet and is like, you know, play something harder or whatever. We didn't have that. Um, yeah, in a lot of ways, you, you're not really making things easy on yourself, you know, in terms of, well, I guess, to begin with, putting on a techno festival in Denver and the Passholder Only thing and the Super Underground lineup. In a way, the whole thing has this sort of scrappy underdog mentality to it. What makes that struggle worthwhile to you or what, what makes the whole endeavor yeah, exciting for you? Well, for, it's for a couple of reasons. One, it's trying to book people that I would never want, otherwise get to see in Denver, right? And I feel like, again, it's, it's disingenuous for me as a promoter to book something that I myself would not want to see. Now, maybe that's, I'm not very good at business and maybe that's a really good reason why. But, you know, this is also an art form as well. And I want to look back and be proud of the people that I booked. And I don't want to look back and think that, you know, I book someone just because it would get numbers in the door and then, you know, they don't care about what we're doing. My friend Kevin said this, and I feel like it, it's totally true. It's easy to do a small party. It's easy to do a big party. It's hard to do a middle-sized party. And that's so true. And I'd never really thought of that until he said that, uh, you know, this past week. And it's really, really true. It's, it's hard to do these medium-sized lineups, right? I think it's easier in Europe because, like, the medium-sized lineup for us in the states would would galvanize more people it would, it would bring in you know a thousand people but you know for me if i get 500 people for a show i'm really excited i think i feel like that's the number we want and that's the number i want any more than that you're you're kind of pulling the elasticity of of what can really work and you know um you know not to go back to the weed thing but we struggle with venues in denver right now when i originally started doing shows the only reason people ever even booked me in Colorado or even cared about me was because I had a warehouse. I had this underground warehouse called The Woodshop that my friends and I rented. And the only reason was just so we could do our shows there. You know, it's just let's let's do our own parties. No one's booking us, so let's do our own parties. And all of a sudden, you know, after, you know, six months of having, because Denver's a curfew town like most cities in the U.S., right? Bars shut down at 2 a.m. Well, techno's not meant for 9 p.m. to 2 a.m. Techno's meant for 2 a.m. to 7 a.m., at least the style that I like. And so I wanted to be able to, to do shows that did that. And so, you know, when I had the warehouse, all of a sudden the people that would never return my phone call or never talk to me at a bar, all of a sudden now they want me to play their show. And it kind of dawned on me that it's, you know, it's not like they thought I had talent or whatever. It's because I had something to offer. I had something that they needed and it was a way for me to contribute to the community. Well, it's hard to get a warehouse now. And part of that is, is the marijuana thing because what would be an empty warehouse in Denver that we were able to get for next to nothing, now they're growing marijuana in it. Or I approach a landlord and say, hey, we want to rent this warehouse because we're a sound company. And you know, you can't say, hey, we're wanting to rent your warehouse to do illegal underground techno shows. That's not going to happen. You know, so we'd say, hey, we're a sound company that builds and designs sound systems. You know, We want to have a place that we can test it that's not in a residential neighborhood. <coughs> they don't even believe that anymore. They think we're trying to grow weed there. And if not, they're going to hold out for someone who is going to try and grow weed there where they can make more money. And where there would be an empty storefront, you know, or an empty art gallery, now it's a dispensary or now it's a shop that sells, you know, grow supplies or whatever. So the city's really, really grown over the last two, three years. And, you know, I think the state of Colorado and the city would try to say, oh, no, 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 that's not marijuana related. It's for a variety of factors. But it is marijuana related. It you really say is. it's growing. You mean like there's more people, more money? Yeah, there's. I think the last time I read, it was four thousand people a month are moving just to the city of Denver alone. Wow. I mean, the city's exploded, and you know, for people that are trying to get housing, there's one percent availability for rentals for single family homes. It just the market has really dried up. And part of the reason that you can't get a single family home is that there used to be a three bedroom house that like three or four people would live in. Now it's just two guys and they're growing weed in the extra bedroom or they're growing weed in the basement. So it's like less people in larger houses because people are growing pot everywhere. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's not a bad thing. The economy in the state is doing fantastic. I think it's three and a half percent unemployment. I mean, it's remarkable actually. And that sounds like a good thing. Why would that all be bad? Well, <laughs> techno thrives in communities where it's a little rough around the edges, right? It's a little, you know, it's like a little more dingier and economically you know, sick. Yeah, it's economically sick, exactly, because it's like a crushed basement or, you know, just these venues that are not typical clubs, I feel like is where the sound sounds best. Again, like I alluded to earlier, your aesthetic and your environment makes the sound. It really does. And so, you know, it's something that we're, I wouldn't say struggling with, but we're just trying to be malleable and trying to figure out 
our place in the changing city right now. So I think doing an avant-garde lineup the way we do, it's important because not just, not just for me from a personal aspect, but you know, I want to show these people. I've lived in Denver for 12 years. I want to bring these artists and show the city that I've liked. I mean, if I didn't like it, I would have left by now and show them, you know, a side of the country that most people don't get to see before. And like, I think part of the reason I like to do a, a little bit weirder lineup is I want people to stay a couple extra days. I hate the idea of, of an artist flying in and then flying out. I want you to be able to stay the whole weekend. And that was what was really rad about the bunker guys is they stayed the whole weekend with us. You know, half of them stayed at my house and, you know, so they got to see all the artists who we brought in for the festival. They got to, you know, go check out the breweries that they wanted to go to, go to a dispensary, go shopping, you know, do that sort of thing as well. And so you just have more of an attachment with artists that you bring in and you have a personal relationship with them as opposed to, you know, a five minute conversation. Here's your cash. Here's your check. Great set. See you later. You know, maybe we'll talk again if I see you at Bergheim for five minutes when I'm over here. But you know, we want to try and develop, for lack of a better term, a closer relationship with artists. And we want to feel like they know us and know our city and know know the staff and, the, and their audience as well. I mean, I feel like it's fun when you're a consumer, when you're on the dance floor and you see like one of the artists that you saw play the night before and they're there rocking out too. It kind of makes you feel a little bit better about the show you're at. Like, oh, cool. You know, I actually liked that guy's set last night. He looks, oh, maybe I'll pay attention a little more. <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's interesting. It sounds like, kind of a guiding factor is um it sounds really simple but it's just what you would want so if you book the artist that you just want to see in colorado and you you know and you haven't seen them or you um got the warehouse because you want to put on your parties there it's like that's maybe the easiest way to stay in touch with what's actually worthwhile or what would be cool yeah it's unbelievably selfish to hear you say that but it's <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of true to to a certain degree and i had actually it's funny that you say that because i have a friend who sent me an article this past week from the New Yorker about the New York hardcore scene. And by hardcore, I don't mean like hardcore EDM, like Omar Santana, like hardcore as far as agnostic front and war zone and that kind of New York hardcore that was big in the eighties. And agnostic front was a band that I just really gravitated towards as a kid, as a pissed off 16 year old growing up in Virginia, that sort of pissed off, angry hardcore was something I, I really liked. And so Vinny Stigma said in this, he was one of the guitarists for Agnostic Front. He had this quote in The New Yorker that I'm paraphrasing, but it was basically, I didn't put you in Agnostic Front because I thought you were a good musician. I brought you in Agnostic Front because I saw you in the pit and I saw you as part of the community and I felt like you were part of that. And I feel like it's totally true. I mean, there's very few artists that are really, truly transcendent musicians that we need to bring them in just because you have to see them. There's only a handful that really are. Most people are fighting for the scraps like everyone else. And so I would rather bring someone in who I personally want to hang out with. You know, I mean, it's that may be oversimplifying it, but it's ultimately true. I'd rather pay someone, like, it's probably a 50-50 chance I'm either going to break even, make money, or lose money, right, on a show. I'd rather lose money and the money that I'm paying to the artist go to someone who I respect and I like and get to hang out with other than someone where this is just another brick in the wall, another check, and see you later. And it's kind of the same thing with with booking people locally. You know, I'd rather book someone who, you know, one of my <laughs> one of my friends back home said this a couple of years ago. You know, we book you because we want to hang out with you because we can tolerate being around you for seven eight seven or eight hours. But it's true; it really is. I mean, you're working late hours, and it's a very booze and drug influenced business. I want to be around people that I can like tolerate <laughs> with with those things, and who I want to hang around with, and. For better or worse, my bookings are going to go along with that. You know, I want to book people that I want to be around. I want to book people that, yeah, it may not be the, you know, there's just very few Jeff Mills in the world. There really are. I think, you know, a lot of 20-year-old dudes want to think that they're the next Jeff Mills or the next, you know, really breakthrough artist. It's just not going to happen. And you've got to do many other facets that that are part of it. And part of it's being part of the community and, you know, being decent enough to hang out with and have a beer after two o'clock, to be honest. There is a lot of evidence that that approach works. Like some of the most well-loved events around the world are this sort of thing, um, you know, labyrinth, free rotation, the no way back party in Detroit, or a few that I've been to that feel that way where the artists, the promoters, they're all friends. They know a lot of people in the audience. And then that does have the real effect that, um, people tend to play a lot better because like you said, like 
they're sweating over this gig. This is important to them personally. It's yeah, and you're playing for your peers, right? You're you're looking out when you see your peers in the audience or like other friends. If it's a random crowd, you still want to play well. You know, not to do a sports analogy, but but Joe DiMaggio, the legendary Yankees player, would you know someone asked him one time, they're like, why why do you always play so hard, Joe DiMaggio? You're going to ruin your career. You're going to end it early. And he always said, you know, I want to play as hard as I can, so that way the kid who's never seen me before can see that I've played my hardest. Well, it's just hard to do that when you have a lot of bad gigs. I mean, let's be honest. Like, you know, you can talk to any DJ. One in 10, one in 20 is good. I mean, one in five, one in three if you're lucky. But there are a lot more bad gigs than there are good gigs. And it's just hard to really bleed out when it's not a good gig. But when you, even if it's a small show and you look out, it's like 10 of your friends in the front row. That's all, that's all that matters, right? And you're like playing to them at that point. Like it's a house party, like when you're getting started. And I feel like that's really, really important is to have that kind of peer relationship. And I mean, you mentioned Labyrinth and Free Rotation Festival. I mean, those are two that we absolutely look up to, you know, and it's like, we can never be those, you know, they're based on circumstance of, of their locations and, and the people that they've helped foster, but it's absolutely admirable what they do. And it's something that, you know, I haven't been to either one, but I aspire to go to both. Somehow I can get one of those golden tickets somehow to get in. So speaking of circumstances, we sort of touched on earlier how a lot of these American techno artists just leave for Europe and the scene in the U S doesn't have the same infrastructure that it does abroad. I guess aside from just the general, you know, issue of popularity and how many artists there are, what are some of the hard circumstances that, you know, you face that hold the scene back in the U.S. that, that make it particularly hard to put on this kind of event in the U.S.? Well, I think ultimately it's it's the bar curfew. That's, that's the biggest thing that pigeonholes us. It forces a lot of us in Denver. I feel like a lot of the people that, and there's several crews that are doing really cool shows and really cool parties in Colorado. It forces us to look for alternative venues, right? And so you're having to pay for a place that's going to be open after hours. So there's a premium paid on that. And then you're having to bring in your son. It's all DIY. But that makes a better party. It honestly does. And, you know, there's the two cities, right, that have 24 hours and open container on the street in the States, New Orleans and Las Vegas, are two of the worst for techno and, and for electronic music. And that's something that I've seriously struggled with because I went to college in Mississippi. And I felt like New Orleans was going to be that promised land. You know, it was like New Orleans is set up for this. But New Orleans and Vegas in and of themselves, they had their own identity, you know, that's truly made them what they are. Techno is never going to make ripple there as much as we want to. But that being said, you know, the United States is, there's a lot of really cool stuff that's happening throughout the country, right? I mean, if you look at what's happening in New York with the bunker, I mean, those guys are able to do, Brian is able to do some really remarkable stuff. And in fact, I'm totally envious. He's able to do bookings that that they can get away with that I just can't, you know, unless I'm taking a huge risk. Los Angeles, the same thing where you have the droid crew, Mount Analog, Dirty Epic. You have some really cool crews that are out there that are struggling, but we all go through the same thing. It's you're, you're doing an illegal party. It's you're just like one phone call or one noise complaint away from getting the whole shit shut down. And, you know, the cops for the most part have been relatively cool across the country about this because we're, most of us are doing parties that are 21 plus. And I mean, it's rarely do you have any 21 year olds there. I mean, our average median age, I would say is probably 30, you know, maybe down, dips down to 25, but I mean, it's about a 30 to 40 crowd. And so I think when the police do show up, you know, the several times that I've had cops show up at our, at my warehouse or when we've doing, been doing parties, they walk in and they say, you know, oh, you're IDing, you have private security, it's an older crowd, eh, we'll let, we'll let this one slide. Like, can you turn it down? You know, if you have to come back, then we'll throw the book at you. But the first party that we ever had get busted at, at the woodshop, which was in 2011, I think it was. I mean, we were serving alcohol illegally after two. And I mean, they could have just thrown the book at us. You know, I mean, like, could have gone and gone to jail in handcuffs. We got a noise complaint for a $140 ticket. So, you know, knock on wood, they've, we've, we've been really lucky with that. But I think that's always, you know, maybe it's the Puritan influence of the United States. I feel like, you know, in many aspects, not just music, I feel like that's kind of this halo that kind of exists over things that you have to deal with. But things are not bad. You know, I feel like, and you look at Chicago as well, right? Chicago is able, with Smart Bar, especially with what Maria and Jeff Derringer and people like that are doing there, 
they're really able to do some really cool stuff and do it in a club environment and, and to make it work. And I feel like Smart Bar has kind of really made a transition over the last few years to kind of have a real cool identity. And it's, you know, it's not a big place. It's a small place. What is it, like 350, 400 people? You know, that's perfect. That's exactly what I'm talking about. That's the size that we're looking for. So I think as long as, you know, promoters kind of have that perspective that like, let's try, you know, there's, it's so hard to get a thousand people. It's so hard for us, especially in Colorado. And I feel like part of the reason Colorado struggles is we're kind of on an island, right? We're in the middle of the country, right? But if, let's say you do a party in New York, you still have Boston an hour and a half away, Philadelphia is an hour away, you know, Baltimore and, and Washington DC are right below that. So for people on the East Coast, if there's something really cool that's happening in New York, I can take a train, I can take a you know, quick JetBlue or Southwest flight. And get there in no time, see a show and get back. For Colorado, it's a commitment. And you know, Denver and the Denver metro area has, I think, three and a half million people, which sounds like a lot, right? But I mean, there's nothing once you get outside of Denver, right? The nearest quote unquote big cities are Omaha to the east, which is a cool eight hour drive. There's no train between Omaha and Denver, or uh, Salt Lake City to the west. Which, I mean, and does anyone think Omaha and, and Salt Lake are big cities? And that's not to dog on them. They're both, they're both fine cities. It's just there's not a population there that they're, they're going to have, you know, 10 cars full of people that are driving to Denver for a show. It is not going to happen. So we're like on this island where we're like really dependent on either the tourism stuff. Hopefully you're coming in for, for weed stuff or, you know, you're going skiing in the mountains or you're, you're trying to do the mountain stuff. But that's something I feel like that really hurts us, you know, and... You know, California is different because LA and San Diego are close together. You know, San Francisco is, is right up there. They You can kind of pull from those audiences. Chicago is the same way. You have Milwaukee to the north and Detroit to the east and, and Indiana right there where they can, you know, Chicago is a much larger city than Denver as well. But you have a regional population you can pull from. You're just trying to wrangle in skiers and potheads and beer enthusiasts. Yeah. And, and okay. And unless they're checking out events on Resident Advisor, how are they going to find out about our stuff? Honestly, they're not going to be on Facebook or Twitter. They're probably not following me. So it's really hard to pull those people in. Whereas, you know, something like Output, people know. Something like Smart Bar, people know. 10, 15 Folsom in San Francisco for, or Public Works in San Francisco, you know. I feel like regionally, it's very important. I used to never have that, that philosophy. It's like, ah, Denver's a big city. People are going to want to come to Denver. But then when we were trying to like really figure out how do we get, how do we grow our numbers, that became like a really big sticking point. You know, and I feel like another thing that kind of hurts us in the States is that house techno dubstep EDM, right? We were talking about how the, for the most part, most cities have a curfew and they close at two o'clock. We don't have a trade group or an industry group where everyone in the competing genres can get together and like have our legislators or have our lobbyists go to work for us. And like, you know, we may not get everything we want, but we'll at least be in the conversation. That just doesn't exist. You know, Coke and Pepsi are massive competitors, but they have a trade group. They have an industry group that goes to Congress and will lobby them. You know, that will go to the state legislator, legislature and lobby for them. We don't have that, you know? And I feel like that's what hurts if we kind of, you know, I don't, I have no clue how that would ever happen, but if we could actually have an industry trade group to where all these different genres where it's the clubs, the artists, the promoters, the producers, in the sound techs. There's just so many different people that are part of this industry, little facets, that if we actually had some sort of lobbying team, you know, again, we may not get everything we want, but at least put our foot in the door, be part of the conversation, which is, I think that's where we're seriously lacking as far as moving forward in the States. Well, it's interesting how I can tell by your faces, like once you're saying that, it's, it starts to sound like totally unrealistic. But then at the same time, in a way, similar things happen in other cities, like in you know, like in other countries anyway, like um, the Festival of Nuit Sonore in Lyon. It's almost completely the result of you know a local effort to increase cool cultural stuff for young people in the city, and they more or less bankroll this you know this big techno festival, DBS One playing for two thousand people or whatever. I imagine it must. I don't know. In the U.S., it must feel like you're kind of hanging out to dry or whatever you, you know it does but then you have certain people like community which is our next door festival up in boulder and uh boulder is only about a 30 minute drive from denver community is able to tap into the available grants and then using the university of colorado which is also there they're able to use that to their advantage you know 
unfortunately, I was too stupid to think of stuff like that. When I started, I was just like, you know, we're going to go the sponsorship route. I think my idea was kind of like, we're just going to try and get sponsors in because as the rock dies, you know, these sponsors are going to want to gravitate towards something else and hopefully our name will, will pull them in. And yeah, it does work, but you're spending more time trying to pull in sponsors than I should be working on the actual festival. I should be curating and like actually making the event better. So this year we also made the, the idea of we're not, we're not going for sponsors anymore, you know? And I think that hurt us financially, but it also created a better product because I'm not catering to, to a sponsor that doesn't care about us. All they care about is literally just the numbers and that's it. You know, they don't care about the products that's coming out. But, you know, back to the, the trade group thing, I feel like because it doesn't exist, that means there's a possibility. You know, it's just about having more people. And I think a lot of people do feel this way, that that progress can happen. I mean, God knows, I never thought I would see marijuana legal in the United States, nevertheless the state that I lived in, but it happened. And it happened overnight, and now the state's thriving from it, and the state's making a ton of money, and now you have, you know, it went from Colorado and Washington State as the first two, and now it's Alaska, Oregon, Washington State, Colorado, Washington, D.C. Now I've all legalized it for recreational purposes. So, you know, in that same vein, it can happen. It can happen for electronic music. And I think it's it's not about it all happening overnight, right? It's not about Denver going from a 2 a.m. curfew to 24-hour bars open. That's not going to happen, but it's about extending the curfew to four maybe to five, maybe to six, you know, and just, I think slowly we'll get that. I think it can happen. It's tempting to think that all it would take would be for that curfew to get pushed back long enough, you know, for venue owners and promoters to make a case that they're losing out on a lot of revenue because of these curfews. And yeah, as you said, and maybe that's not so unrealistic, but that could happen. Um, it's not. I mean, the Denver police force, in fact, they are one of the biggest advocates of extending the 2 a.m. curfew because what happens is the bars all close at 2. You flood, they flood the streets with everyone, right? Hey, it's 1.45, up last call. Well, let me drink two drinks real quick and then go get my car, you know. And then you have a bunch of fucking drunk fools driving around everywhere. The police department can't enforce all that. They can't enforce the number of people in all those different bars that are getting out at once. So they are actually advocates of the 4 a.m. thing. The problem is it's the actual bars for the most part. I mean, some lobby for it, but a lot of the bars don't. They say, well, we don't want to pay two extra hours. That's not going to make a difference. We're doing fine as it is now. We don't want to have to, have to pay the extra insurance. We don't have to pay our employees more. And honestly, that's a false argument to me. It really is. I mean, just two hours would make a colossal difference for me wanting to do a club event. It would make me less inclined to try and do an underground show because... People need to play two, three hours. I mean, two at the minimum, three really at the minimum. And so I'm just, I'm loath to book someone when they only get to play from 11 to 145. I, you know, for the music we like, it doesn't work. That person should be on at one at the earliest, you know. For example, you know, someone like Marco Shuttle, who I saw at Bergheim and was really blown away with. I thought he was fantastic. You know, if I wanted to bring him to Denver, I could not have him play from 11 to 2. That's just... Yeah, it would work, and yeah, maybe people would show up, but his sound is not meant for that, not right now at least. So it's again, it's about trying to, to fit the pieces together and really make it work. And I think that's why when you have a great party pop off, wherever it is, you know, in whatever part of the world, whatever city, it's a lot of circumstances that come together to really make it happen. And we can go to 20 parties, and like I said, you know, it's only like one or two that really resonate with you. So... I think that's what's fun about the challenge as well is that, yeah, it's, it's a lot harder to do an underground party, but man, when it pops off, you know, your audience appreciates that as well of, hey, we're in a venue where we normally would never have a party. You know, our venue we've been using recently is a parkour gym in Denver, you know? so what, like, A what gym? A parkour gym, which is basically <clears throat> like a, it's kind of like, not necessarily CrossFit, but like parkour is like the kids that jump building to building right for, as like exercise entertainment well they actually build gyms like that in colorado for people to like climb and tumble and do all that sort of stuff so there's one actually community started using it first they started using it in, in boulder and the same company opened up one in denver and it's a little bit too big you know like i think the venue could probably do probably 800 people in there and i'm lucky if i get 300 so it feels a little hollow sometimes but at the same time you know we're making what no one in their right mind thought was going to have a party happen from like 8 p.m. And then all of a sudden we bring in the sound guys and bring in the security. And a couple hours later, you know, there's a party popping off and then it disappears, you know, the next day. There's, there's something fun about that. And yeah, it's challenging, but 
and it's nothing against the clubs. I mean, but what's really special about an event in a club when there's going to be another one tomorrow night and the night after and then the next week and just the same cycle repeats like this party may never exist that we do again in this parkour gym but at least there was like that one little moment that you have there and i feel like that's gonna stick with your crowd more in the end it's gonna stick with me at least and again it's you know not to be repetitive but it's just very disingenuous to try for me to try and sell something to my crowd that i myself would not want to attend you know, and that's ultimately kind of the simplistic, basic way of, of doing my bookings now. I guess that's kind of the ultimate smell test where yeah. I go. Yeah, absolutely. Like, would I want to be here? Like, if I want to get out of my own party, like, let's just go ahead and shut it down. You know, tell the DJ you've got five more minutes, two more tracks, and you're done. But yeah, the challenge is, the challenge is totally worth it. The United States, I think, is always going to have challenges when it comes to this. And I feel like our new challenge that we actually have is that with rock dying, you know, and people are saying rock is never going to be dead. And, and that may be true. But you have companies like Live Nation and AG Live, these larger companies, right, that have been doing rock bookings for years and years. Now they're getting into the dance music stuff, the EDM, the dubstep. And so they are booking these artists they weren't otherwise booking. And so now those prices go up for these artists that would be playing at a club that was 800 to 1,000 people in the States. Now they're playing at a venue that's 1,500 to 2,000 people, right? So naturally, their prices go up. And so it's it's great in a way that some of these artists whom I like and whom I dig, some of my friends are actually starting to get paid more now. The problem is my numbers haven't gone up enough, and I feel like a lot of promoters around the States see this as well. Our numbers aren't going up enough to justify that increase in cost. And so certain venues that were able to get a Skrillex, for lack of a better artist, five years ago, they were able to get him then, but now they can't because he's playing stadiums and, and stuff like that. So now they need to look for different people. And so they're starting to kind of pluck from our tier, from our artists, and starting to book people like that. And that raises – it just – the prices are going up all across the board now. And our numbers are not going up to necessarily justify that all the time. I guess it's kind of be careful what you wish for. Yeah. Yeah, because we did want it to grow. I was absolutely at the forefront of like let's let's grow American techno and – Let's really try and let's bring it back home, right? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I'm always down to see people get paid more. And maybe that's bad, but you only have a limited time frame to make money in this business, and especially as an artist, especially as a DJ. I mean, make as much as you can while you can because the you're on the clock as soon as you start, as soon as you start getting these, you know, bigger bookings. You're on the clock for when you're going to get kicked off. And it's always, there's always going to be someone next or there's always going to be this other artist that got passed over and now they get, you know, brought to the forefront again. So I'm happy with the people making money. I really am. But it's, it doesn't help me <laughs> as well. I mean, I'm not making the money like that when I play. But I think part of that is I'm also a promoter. And I'm, you know, I'm very sympathetic to the trials and tribulations that we go through in the United States. So, like, you don't need to put me in a hotel. I'll sleep on your mom's couch. I don't care. You know, and just, like, make sure that you can put more money into the gig, more money into the sound. And I'll have a good time. I don't care. So, and I think a lot more people do understand that now. It's just kind of funny being over here and talking to a lot of expats about, like, the state of American techno, right? <laughs> How are things? And people all have a different perspective on it. But I feel like more people are able to make a living out of it than ever were before. And in the end, that's a good thing. you know. To me, it seems like there's kind of a solid community spread around the states. You named a few of them earlier before, like Droid and the Bunker, and then also Decibel and Communikey mm -hmm. and there's a decent number of artists and promoters in, you know, what you described as your tier. Does it feel that way to you? Like, does it feel like you're part of this, you know, kind of nationwide community to some extent? Yes. I mean, I feel like I would say yes and no, but almost part of me wants to say yes, absolutely. Because we're dependent on each other. Like I'm dependent on Seattle and Chicago and LA and New York or Kansas city. Um, to help, we, we need other people to pick up those flight shares. And we need to communicate with each other about what we're paying these artists. Because if people are pushing the prices up, it's going to affect all of us. Because why would they play for me at one price when they're getting double in another city? And it's the States. And, you know, agents are going to take that and run with it. You know, they're going to say, hey, my artist is getting paid blank in so-and-so in -so city. Uh, therefore, they need to get get paid the same in yours and so it's about having perspective and there are there are 
you know, there are a few agents that really do understand market size and do understand that, you know, we need help. You know, we, we need help. We need to help each other. And we need help from the artists and the agents to to make a make a party work. And you know, one of the things I think we do have to sell in Denver is the fact that we're kind of in the middle of the country. So I can tell an artist, hey, you know, play New York and Philadelphia Friday and Saturday. You know, play Chicago or Detroit the next Friday. Play for us on a Saturday, and then you can hang in Denver for a week until you need to go to Seattle, San Francisco, and L.A. And that's the one thing we do have to offer. Is like, you know, you know, it's. It's not a crappy city. Like it's actually a cool city to hang out in, and so a lot of a lot of promoters do get that. And you know, we'll have DJs that not necessarily take a pay cut, but like they get it. You know, and that's very important. But it's also very important to have that connection and that dialogue open with the other people. And maybe, okay, maybe I don't want this artist that seattle's booking but because seattle helped me make the flight share happen with the last one you know if they hit me up and say hey we're trying to do this artist may not really be the person i'm wanting to book but it's worth it yeah and you you guys helped me with the last one and i appreciate that and just like you want to keep that relationship open with the artists and agents and venues you want to keep that relationship open with the other promoters it really helps and I, uh, just a good example was Pittsburgh Track Authority, right? We wanted to do three dudes. You know, it's, it's three guys that's part of that doing a live hardware. That's three flights you got to pay for. And for each person, that raises the cost. So that's three people for just one act that's playing the same amount of time. You know, I needed help to make that happen, you know. And so luckily, we were able to get a flight chair in San Francisco with As You Like It, which is doing really cool stuff out there. And Jeremy was able to help us. And that, that made the booking happen. It wouldn't have happened without them. And so, you know, in turn, if Jeremy approaches me about doing something, I'm going to want to help him. Like, even though if I'm not just as gung-ho as he is about the booking, I still appreciate the fact that you helped make this, you know, this act happen that otherwise never would happen, even though they're in the States, you know. At the beginning, we kind of touched on how a lot of people like you from the States have left it behind for Europe where... It goes a bit more easily. You can make a living from it more, more easily, all that. Is there a feeling of commitment to the States? Because do, do you think um, among you and your peers, there's a feeling of you know, not, not wanting to give up on this? No, I don't feel that way. Maybe if you asked me two or three years ago, I would have, I would have said differently. But we're in a globalized society now. You know, it's borders are broken down. You know, most of my good friends are not from the States anymore. There's, they're from every single different country. And we just have a different kind of community that is a worldwide network. And to just be too American focused is going to get me pigeonholed. And that's unfortunately what I feel like the name with Great American Techno Festival has done. It's pigeonholed me as far as what we're trying to do, bookings, and people think, oh, what, you don't like Europe? You don't like, you know, what, you don't think the German artists are good? What, you don't think South America has anything to offer? And that's not the case at all. It was just, this was just the name. We got stuck with it and we had to run with it. And it gave us an identity. But maybe I should feel more loyal to the States, but I, but I honestly don't. And and part of that is because the States is also very competitive. As much as we want to help each other, why don't we have a lobby and trade group? Oh, because house hates techno and, and we hate dubstep and just this whole competitive nature. And maybe that's part of the business. But there's an inherent jealousy that exists within the United States with artists against each other that, you know, we were all of a sudden friends and now you're making more money than me. And instead of being proud that your fucking friend is the one who's who's doing better, it's it's jealousy and it's this, it should be me instead. Maybe that exists over here. Maybe I'm I'm sheltered when I'm here and I don't see that as much, but I just see more people working together here. And I feel like that's something that that holds me back in Denver as well, is that when I come out here and I'm in Berlin for five weeks, I can get more work done seven days a week musically than I can in an entire year in Denver, just because there's so many more people here to work with on all sorts of different things, not just writing music in a studio, but working together to put to put a party together or just hanging around, you know, like like we were with my friends the other night, just quote unquote talking about the state of American techno. There's just more of a kind of collective working effort here. And I think Europe is just different in the way it looks at the arts, right? Europe has always had this kind of pride. And the arts, and I think America has also, by and large, struggled with selling American culture 
to the rest of the world. You know, there's almost a shame that we have of, you know, well, Europe does art better, Europe's done music better and literature and it's where the Renaissance is from. And I think we've been kind of shamed with that for a long time. Obviously we have the exports of, you know, pop music and jazz and blues. And, you know, I think things really changed in the 20th century, but, you know, for the longest time, America had no cultural export, you know, for the first 100 years of the United States history, it was, let's, you know, have the latest fashions from France and let's, you know, mirror the English banking system. It wasn't this embrace of American culture. So I think we have, I think that still subtly plagues the country. It really does. Yeah. There's sort of, at this point, there's the irony that, like you said, there's rock, jazz, blues, house techno not to mention all the tv shows and everything we have loads of cultural exports at this point but there still is a feeling of um it's just not good enough or, or, or that just that um especially europe is, is inherently more sophisticated or mm -hmm. more culturally advanced or something like that but i think part of that is what europe does europe actually funds the arts they they fund stuff like that you know Montreal is the only city in north america that i really know of that i think part of that's quebec is is the whole French Canadian wanting to really preserve that identity of being French, of not being homogenized like the rest of Canada. The United States has gotten homogenized now. You know, growing up in the South, it was almost, you, you're ashamed to be growing up in the South, you know, because of, you know, it's the backwards part of the country. But now I look back on it with a sense of pride of like, at least the South has some sort of culture, like identifiable culture of food and dialect and music, you know, bluegrass and country, whether or not I like it, it's unique to that area. You start going West and yes, there's Western culture, but I mean, America is getting more and more homogenized. There are those regional dialects, right? You're from Boston, right? Yeah. You don't have the regional dialect, yeah. but you know, it exists. And that's, and same with me. I don't, I don't have my Appalachian accent, you know, like, like so many of my friends growing up. And so I think that's happened where you've gotten homogenized and you lose this cultural identity. Montreal wants to preserve that. They want to preserve what has been theirs. And so they flood, you know, not flood Mutec with money, but Mutec has this ability to be able to get cultural funding from the state. And the state's proud of that. And I and you see that over here, you know, it's it's just easier to get cultural funding here. And I think that's from it's it's strange. It's like, you know, techno is a it's yes, it's a club environment. It's dance music, it's a party, but even people that are generations removed from it still respect it. That doesn't, do, I don't feel like that happens in the States, do you? No. Yeah, I just, I don't. It's like, you know, if you aren't from that generation, you know, it doesn't really matter. So I feel like that's part of what, what holds us back as well. It's, you know, luckily I'm very fortunate in that my family is very supportive of me being part of this, but a lot of families are not, you know, a lot of families look at their kids as like, you know, what in the hell are you doing? You know, like, why are you doing something else? Why don't you do something else with your life? I don't feel like that happens as much over here. I don't feel like that happens as much in in countries where art has been embraced for centuries. Art, art has not been embraced for centuries in the United States. You know, for the longest time it was, you're trying to make it on your own. You're trying to get away and remove yourself from, you know, for a lot of families that immigrated to the United States over the last 200 years, you're trying to get away from, what was Europe and make your own in the United States. And I think the United States is so business oriented. So, you know, make your money, make as much as you can while you can. Art's not like that. And I feel like that's why sometimes art struggles in the United States is we try and monetize it, not make it where it lasts generationally, where it lasts centuries. Well, and I guess all that contributes to what you described as um, fighting for scraps. So if, if, if the promoters and the artists in the U.S. are fighting for scraps, then the whole thing just couldn't be as healthy as, you know, it might be somewhere else, I guess. It's weird, right? It's kind of like a catch-22. The fight is what makes it sometimes better, right? Is that just you're having to put, if you know, again, if it was easy, it just wouldn't have that same edge to it. And it's kind of that fight of like when you're able to pull a booking off, just that, you know, and able to pull an artist that you didn't really think could happen and people show up and the party goes off. And it's an illegal party. It shouldn't happen anyway, but you made it happen. It's just a lot said for that. And there's a lot said for just kind of that feeling of, you know, we did it. You know, I don't feel like, I don't feel like a lot of communities can relate to that unless you have to go through the struggle or go through the fact that people don't appreciate house and techno or don't appreciate dance music or just the party in general, the whole party nature of that. So, yeah, it reminds me of this thing. Uh, DVS one said about 
when he was putting on parties in Minneapolis and it's just like you said, like it's illegal. It shouldn't happen. There's so many things have to go exactly right in order for it to not get shut down. He said the feeling was like chasing the dragon. And um, <laughs> he said now like playing at Berkheim, he said it's like, it's like you have the dragon just laying right next to you and you, you can pet it whenever you want. <laughs> in a way, it's like there's something to be said for chasing the dragon. Yeah, and I think as he's kind of alluding to there is it's for art especially and I think comedy is the same, kind of the same well, right? Like who's a funny comedian that's rich? That, <laughs> there's, some, there's nothing funny about being rich, you know? Like it's the comedians that are funny are the ones that struggle, that are the ones that are doing, you know, crappy shows in Hoboken, New Jersey and, you know, Kalamazoo, Michigan or whatever, you know, like, you know, you know, the Jack Dandy Club where there's like 20 people in there, right? And you're on stage, you got to make these people out. Man, that's a struggle. That is hard. But it's that struggle that is funny. You don't... You know, it's like sleeping on a weird couch or, you know, it's the, it's the tragic stories that are funny. And it's the same way with music. It's the same way with art. It's that struggle that kind of makes it better. You know, like good music doesn't, to me, the music I like is in minor keys and minor chords. I almost despise anything that's in a major key and just inherently. And why is that? It's kind of more depressing, right? Like a minor tone. But it's hard when you're happy and you're doing well and hey, I'm making good money. How do you write depressing music when you, it's actually not depression that's pumping through your brain? It's hard. And so you find that when artists do get to that point where they actually have a little bread in their pocket and a little bit of security and comfort, it's not as good because there's that struggle of I might not make it, of maybe this is all I've got. You know, this is my chance right here. I'm gonna pour everything into it. And then all of a sudden that's gone. I feel like you see that a lot of times with artists having this, it happens all the time, regardless of your genre of music. That first album that comes out, right, is fantastic. And then the subsequent albums are not as good because one, they have some money now. But the other thing is when it comes to that first album that someone breaks through with, that first EP, that first single, that's really a lifetime of work that goes into that, right? It's not just the one year they spent recording. It's years and years and years of practice, of struggling on stage, of getting booed off stage, of having people not return your calls that creates that fight and that struggle to make to make that album worthwhile. And now all of a sudden you've got a little bit of money and you're playing cool gigs. As Zach said, you're petting the dragon, right? You're not chasing the dragon. And so it's a different fire that's in your stomach because of it, you know? And that's not always the case. But, you know, I have no desire to see Metallica anymore. When I was a little kid, I wanted to see Metallica like it was going out of style. But, you know, now that they're comforted and they're multimillionaires, it just doesn't, the music just does not sound the same, not to mention they're old, but, you know, just doesn't sound the same. And good art is part of the struggle. You know, look at the, the famous, you know, I know little to nothing about art history, but if you look at a lot of the famous artists that, that made it they made it after they were dead not when they were alive right it was they died and then people started to appreciate their work i don't think they people would like their work as much when they were alive and they were accessible so you know it's tough it's kind of the like i said the catch-22 of it all so i guess in a way that's the uh huge advantage of doing what you do uh, in the states is um you'll never lose that fire in your stomach as you put it yeah absolutely i think that is why for as little amount of people that we actually have showing up at our shows i think this resonates throughout the country we don't have the numbers but we do have a ton of artists and we do have a ton of people that are that are making it on you know not making it to, as a horrible term but that are getting prominence because i think you do have that struggle you do have that fight maybe there's not as many people in the pool to choose from, right? There's less people to choose from. There's less people that are really dedicating their life to doing this. But I think that kind of attitude also fosters it. It really does. You know, it's comfort is not funny. <laughs> comfort is not beautiful sometimes. It really isn't. So I feel like, um, yeah, maybe that is what does keep us going. I mean, honestly, for me, what what pushes me, it's, it's very simple. It's um, the moment I just don't have a good time like the high that i get from playing a really cool party or or throwing on a really good event and making it pop off that's a high that i've never been able to replicate through drugs or alcohol or sex or any of the, the general ways that people like to get high there's a high that comes from doing those events that you just can't recreate you just can't and i think the moment that i lose that feeling that like it's a really great party and i'm just like eh, then it's time to quit